We're looking at the second letter of Paul to Timothy, and we're in chapter 2, and tonight we're going to consider verses 22 to 24. 2 Timothy 2, 22. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels and the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. So we are meeting here tonight um, foundational truths about the nature of the Christian life. And I want to begin then by speaking about the importance of change. The secret of, of change for every Christian. And so my first point will be on the importance of change. These verses are all about change. They're all about spiritual change and moral change and growth. And one of the great ends of preaching is movement. In other words, to move unbelievers to belief, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and to move Christians from defeated lives to victorious lives. Change is hard. We're not so easy about changing, after all. Jeremiah quotes uh, a proverb that was uh, existent in his day. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? And then those that were listening to Jeremiah quoted that back to him. And as a justification for them not listening and not changing. And so Jeremiah says then, Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. So they were listening to him and he was calling on them to turn from their sins and to trust in God, to give up their unbelief and their drunkenness and their worship of their, their idols, their bales. But then they smiled tolerantly back at him. They patronized him. They said, uh, well, we'd like to, but we can't. As the old proverb says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? This is how we are. This is how our personality. Our parents were like this, and, and so are we. We'd like to change. We admire religion. Uh, we admire morality. Uh, and we like all you say. But it's, it's not for us. You see, uh, we can't change. So they had, in other words, contracted habits of unbelief and compromise by long practice. So when Jeremiah preached to them, he said in 22.21, I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said I won't listen. This has been your practice since your youth, that you have not obeyed my voice. 
<coughs> well, now, this is what we're facing in all the Western world. We face it in, in Aberystwyth, but we face it everywhere. We, we all meet people who tell us that they admire our faith, but then it's not for them. Um, they can't change. It's just the way I am. And we say to them, yes, you can change. The problem is you don't want to change. Change is costly for you. A minister whose life has revolved around preparing three messages each week and visiting his flock has to retire and change his routine. He can do that. He can change. Children who slam doors habitually can learn to close them quietly. Two people who get married can make the adjustment, sharing a home with a spouse. A wife who loses her husband can learn new patterns of singleness. Change is hard, but change is not impossible. One of the main reasons Christians stagger and limp and fall is that they are either unwilling to make changes or they don't know how to make the changes God requires of each one of us. If there is anything that God requires of you in what you heard, read tonight in Ephesians 4, then God can enable you to do it. Any quality of life, any difference in behavior, any attitude of mind, any change of affection, any activity God requires of you, he can enable you to do. Through the grace of Jesus Christ, that is a given. There is no debate. That is non-negotiable. Whatever the Sermon on the Mount requires, then, by the grace of God, you can achieve it. Jesus doesn't teach impossible and hopelessly theoretical and unattainable behavior patterns. You can love your enemy. You can forgive 70 times 7. You can turn the other cheek. You can pray without ceasing. You can bear the burdens of the weak. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And when you say to me, well, I just don't have the patience. In other words, this is the way you were born. Your genetic code doesn't allow you to live in the Christ-required way. Then I say to you, you are wrong. Patience and self-control and strength and prayer and a desire to live a holy life can be acquired. They are the fruit of the presence of the Lord who lives in every Christian life. And while some of the gifts of the Holy Spirit were only for the apostolic period, especially the gift then of the apostleship, all the fruit of the Spirit is for today. So in our text then, Paul is not simply addressing the super-Christian. Timothy, the pastor of the Ephesian congregation, he certainly is exhorting him, but he tells us 
he is also addressing others. And he describes them in this way. Verse 22, those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Now, many people say prayers. Men can say, God, I hope there'll be no policemen around when I go to that place. They say prayers about getting a woman. Women ask that their ticket will win the lottery. They call on God to help them. But they are not calling out of a pure heart. They're calling out of a greedy heart or a lustful heart or a thieving heart. Now, what do you do? Um, crying to God is where it all begins. It all starts there. You, you haven't got to first base unless you start here. By speaking in your own words, you, you, you address God. You say something like, Lord, my life's in a mess. I've been ignoring you for too long. I'm sorry. You promise in your word that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, I'm, I'm calling on your name. Please, Lord, save me. But you've got to put it, that's not the formula, but it's uh, the sort of approach that a pure heart brings to a holy God, telling him that you need his salvation. And you keep praying. You keep speaking to the Lord. And you ask him, please become my Lord and Savior and give me an, an inner witness. Speak to my heart and, and tell me so that I know that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Now to everyone who becomes a Christian who's got to first base, then Paul speaks here and he says something negative and he says something positive. And the negative thing he says in verse 22 is flee the evil desires of youth. And then the positive exhortation is pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And I shall show you then that this negative and positive pattern is what we find everywhere in the scriptures. Let me ask you uh, an ancient riddle the sort of riddle that you get on cheap Christmas crackers or the back of penguin biscuits. This old riddle is not about why did the uh, chicken cross the road, but it's the other one. When is a door not a door? And you know the answer. The answer is when it's ajar. Now, let's ask the same question, <clears throat> but with a slightly different answer. When is a door not a door? And the answer is when it is something else. Now that is how Paul is uh, approaching Timothy and every, every Christian, every one of us, about changing our lifestyle. You know that changes take place uh, all the time, particularly New Year's Day and for a few days afterwards. People have made resolutions and they keep a change for a little time. Or the first day of Lent, then, uh, chocolate consumption uh, temporarily goes down. Changes happen. They happen after orgies. They happen the day after drunkenness, 
when there's a wretched hangover. They happen after a drugs bust or an arrest when people feel sick at heart and ashamed and then there are temporary resolutions and temporary changes. But a change of activity is not the same as the change of a person. The former is stimulated by certain conditions, but the latter involves a change in the very fabric of your life. In spite of various conditions you go through, and sometimes in the teeth of the conditions, you yourself have changed, and there is no going back. You've died to sin. The Bible says every Christian has died to the reign and dominion of sin, and you're living now to righteousness. That's there in front of you. Righteousness. I must be a righteous man. Well, now, let's go back to this riddle. When is something not something? And uh, the answer is, when it's something else. When is a bully not a bully? When is a lustful young man not a lustful young man? And the answer is not when he stops bullying or when he stops his lusts. He can stop his bullying outwardly. But in his heart, he is still a bully. He can stop practicing his lusts. But in his heart and in his imagination, he is still lustful. Just for a moment, just for a little period, he is not bullying. He may be under surveillance. He may be waiting to appear in court on a charge. He, made, he may have made a resolution that he's going to stop bullying. He may be in prison. But what will happen to him when the court case is over and he is discharged? He is released from prison. He is on parole. And he may need money very badly. We know that people don't display criminal activity all the time. And so temporary displays of abstinence are no indication, no sure indication of a change of character and that a change of behavior has occurred. So a badly behaving person is not a badly behaving person when he is something else. The second thing I want you to look at is the New Testament pattern for change. Let me show you the approach of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament in this matter of changing our behavior and becoming more Christ-like people. You find it particularly in the passage of Scripture that was read in your hearing in Ephesians chapter 4. You also find it in the Sermon on the Mount, and you find it in Romans chapter 12. And those are the great passages that tell us in the New Testament how real change can be attained. But we'll just concentrate on Ephesians 4. And you will remember the emphatic beginning in verse 17. So I tell you this. Well, he's been telling us everything in the three chapters preceding it, but now he wants to underline something of crucial importance. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. So there's a triple emphasis of how important this section of Scripture is. He's urging them to change. And he does so, you remember, first of all, by describing the horrible, ungodly ways 
in which men and women around him, who are made in the image and likeness of God, behave. He says they are indulging in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Well, you read the papers every day, and uh, you hear just what men and, and women and young people are capable of. And then these people are converted. Come, they come to hear of the Lord Jesus and they turn from their sins and they're filled with repentance. And there's a change of outlook and there's a change of personality. And he tells us that they have put off the old man, what they used to be. They will no longer act like that anymore. They've put off that old man and they put on a new self. And he tells us that's the overall introduction to the verses that follow. That's in verses 23 and 24. The whole lifestyle changes. The image, you see, is taking off. You've got stinking garments. You're like uh, Josiah the high priest in, in Zechariah. and uh, you, They're filthy garments. And you take off those filthy garments, everyone, and you put them in a bonfire in the back garden and you set a light to them. All the stuff you walk the streets in, immodest clothes, all the stuff you strutted your stuff in, defiling things, and you, you burn them all, you destroy them all, and then you put on beautiful, clean, sweet-smelling, elegant, modest, new clothes. That, that's the pattern. That's what a Christian is. That's what a Christian becomes. He's said goodbye to an old, wretched way of life. And now he's living a new life. And that's the broad pattern. In our text, then, in, in 2 Timothy, of fleeing the evil desires of youth and pursuing great virtues. Negative, positive. So, true change, it comes from God, and it has two prongs. Putting on would be hypocritical and temporary unless it was also accompanied by putting off. So we go back to the riddle then, once again. When is a liar not a liar? And the answer is when he is something else. All right, but what else? By what is his lying replaced. So Paul here tells us, chapter 4 of Ephesians and verse 25, he tells us to speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. So you set aside lying and you speak truthfully to your neighbors. And he uses this interesting um, analogy that we are members of one body, he says. You don't lie to the members of your body. The brain doesn't say, I'm not going to tell the breast that it has cancer. I'm going to tell it that it is perfectly healthy. And that is wrong. Because you're part of the same body. And cancer in one part, unless it is treated, is going to affect every part. So when is a liar not a liar? When... He or she has become a truth-teller. That's the answer. In other words, when he or she has been reprogrammed. 
and rehabituated so that even when she's tired or fed up or under great stress, she will still say the truth, even to her own hurt. Unless he has put on the new man, he's going to be vulnerable to reverses under pressure. New patterns of response, they they must be dominant in this new life. So, that's one riddle. Then there's another riddle. When is a thief not a thief? And we want to reply, we itch to reply, well, uh, uh, when he's not stealing. But that's not the answer. The answer is in verse 28. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. A thief is still a thief if he's merely stopped stealing. He's just, for the time being, he's not involved in putting his hand in the till or breaking into a house when the owner is out or stealing a bicycle. Under pressure, he is likely to revert to stealing again. Let me say something about the modern prison system. Reoffending costs up to thirteen billion pounds every year. Two thirds of prisoners return to jail within two years. Seventy percent of prisoners have committed at least seven previous offences. The average prisoner has sixteen previous convictions. So here are the prisons and they cost a fortune while they confirm offenders even more deeply in their criminal habits. You stop a thief stealing when you put him in prison. But you do not change his heart. He doesn't have new energy. He doesn't have new divine resolution. To live uh, uh, the kind of life that Paul describes here. He's put off his thieving clothes, but he he hasn't put on new clothes of honesty. So two-thirds of the thieves who come out of prison soon are stealing again. But if he's born again, if he gets a job, if he works hard at earning money honestly, if he learns the blessings of giving, then he is no longer a thief. He has now been reprogrammed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ to working and sharing and knowing the blessedness that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. So this is the pattern through Ephesians chapter 4. Paul talks about anger next. In verses 26 and 27, that you put off the stinking clothes of resentment and hot words. You let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Verse 29, and then you speak helpfully, building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Verse 29, then 
Only then is an angry man not an angry man. It is the same with bitterness and rage and brawling and slander and every kind of malice. Paul says you have to get rid of these things. Verse 31. And what you replace them with, be kind, he says, and compassionate one to another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And I'm telling you that that then is the New Testament pattern. It's the pattern of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, um, don't pray like the Pharisees on street corners loudly so that all the crowds can see them. Go to your room and pray to God in private. And then he says, uh, don't give like the Pharisees with the uh, great trumpet offering canisters in the temple and you with a, a bag full of, uh, of coins and you pour it and it rattles down and everyone looks around and thinks what a generous man you are. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And when you fast, you don't cover your face with ash and walk around so that everyone can see you're a man who is fasting. You anoint your face with oil and you carry on so that no one knows you are like that. This is the pattern in the New Testament from all the apostles. Negative, positive. The two have to be set side by side. John in his third letter he says, Beloved, do not imitate that which is evil, but that which is good. Imitate that. Peter says, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Third thing I want you to see tonight is Paul's pattern then to Timothy and to all of us in this section. And he is reflecting then what he writes here in the verses I've read in your hearing our text for tonight. He's reflecting all I've said to you about especially Ephesians 4 but also the Sermon on the Mount and also in um, John and Peter. He says, firstly, flee youthful passions but pursue every virtue. The first riddle is, how do you know that you have really fled from the evil desires of youth? And the answer is, oh, when we see you pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace. No, the evil desires of youth, they would include sexual desires, but more common than those, they include impatience, self-confidence, self-assertion, wanting other people to hear your opinions, enjoying disputes, a love of novelty. And those are all matters that need wise, moderate words of correction. They all come from immaturity and unrealistic and idealistic view of things. Flee from them. Grow up out of them. Turn from them. They're not helpful to you. They're not helpful to the congregation of which you belong. So you run away from all of that. But you don't stop there. You 
said, I'm not going to live like that any longer. But, ah, you see how now you're to live. And he tells us we are to pursue in our life wonderful, fragrant, beautiful graces. Righteousness is the first one, and that means uh, giving to God what is his due. And giving to man what is his due. And faith, then, well, that means loyalty and reliability, faithfulness, which comes from trusting God with all your heart and leaning not to your own understanding. And then the third grace you are to pursue, having given up then on these uh, rotten youthful lusts, the third grace you are to pursue is love. And love means the strongest affection for fellow believers. And then towards your enemy, you are determined then to wish them no ill and offer them forgiveness for what they've done to you and what they've said about you. No bitterness, no desire for vengeance. You love your enemies and you love one another with pure hearts fervently if you are Christian men and women. And the last grace he mentions is peace. And peace means keeping the bonds of gospel unity and not behaving in a way that strains it to breaking point. Peace is deeming other people better than yourself. Peace is bearing all things from other people. And you pursue these things, he says. You chase after them. You must have them. You catch them up and you make them yours forever. Uh, Not in some self-consciously wise uh, decision-making way. But uh, as someone who is aware that there are new bonds now in my life. That I belong to the people of God. I'm going to live with the people of God forever and ever. I'm going to go to a better land and... uh, I'm going to be with them and I'm going to love them and we're going to work in a new heavens and a new earth for ever and ever. We'll never, never, never be apart from them. And so we can never be aloof. We can never be detached from fellow Christians. We are always dependent on their strength and their counsel. And we are fearful about putting strains on its limits among treasures Christian friends, more than anything else. So, um, he pursues after uh, every virtue with the people of God. And then the second thing we see here, we watch our tongues, but we're kind to everyone. So, uh, Paul again speaks about our words. We've seen it, haven't we, in this chapter before. He's addressing, he's exhorting them to be so careful of what they say. The unbridled tongue. And this is what disturbs Christian righteousness, faith, love and peace more than anything else. And so he condemns your foolish and stupid arguments. Have nothing to do with them, he says, because what happens if you get involved? Quarreling. And anyone who gets involved is aware how sadly accurate Paul's words are. 
And Paul adds, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Verse 24, did you ever find the Lord Jesus quarreling? Did he quarrel with his disciples? Did he quarrel with his mother and his brothers and sisters? Did he even quarrel with his enemies? To quarrel is to sin. And then he adds these two words, not resentful. Verse 24, because resentment always follows quarrels. To be resentful is to sin. Well, who has anything but regret for all of this, for foolish and stupid arguments, for quarrels, for resentment? Better not to say anything. And so we are urged in the New Testament to be slow to speak and swift to hear. We're told that a gentle answer turns wrath away. We're urged not to provoke one another. But it is not enough to be silent, not to do certain things. And then there is this positive exhaltation. Once again, you have it, another riddle. When is a foolish, resentful, and argumentative quarreler not a foolish, resentful, argumentative quarreler? And the answer is not when he doesn't open his mouth. That's not the answer. The answer is when he is kind to everyone, able to teach and gently instructing others. Verse 24 and verse 25, that's what he says. So, not doing things, doing things. Let me say then, fourthly, uh, about establishing new patterns of life. The challenge for us all is uh, to follow the example of Christ. He, Peter says, has left us an example that we should walk in his steps. So every step you take through next week, you are following the example of Jesus Christ. You are motivated to do that by love for him who has given his life for you. And you do it by the energy and the power that the indwelling Holy Spirit provides for you to change. And you do it in obedience to the word of God. That is the Christian life. It is uh, not doing the things God forbids. And it's doing all the things that he exalts us to do. And to continue in them moment by moment, day by day. Often enough and long enough that doing them becomes a part of us. Many things become a part of you because you do them each day. In fact, you hardly think about them. Now, uh, what do you put on first? Your right shoe or your left shoe? Well, you can't remember the little pattern that you have there in the mornings because uh, you do it without thinking over thousands of mornings. You probably can't remember which arm you put into your your shirt or your blouse, uh, first of all, because you, you no longer think of those details. It's not necessary. God has given us a capacity to live like that. Think of when you first began to drive. You sat in the driving seat, 
and there were three pedals, but you only had two legs. And then there was the signaling and the dipping of lights as you changed gear. And how, how can anyone learn to drive? You said, how can you coordinate all of that? And the streets are so narrow and there are pedestrians and other cars and there are cyclists around. How can I ever do it? That was then. Can you remember that? Do you think like that now? You know what happened last night? You got into the car at midnight and effortlessly fastened your seatbelt and slipped the ignition key into the slot and you turned on the motor and you shifted the gears and you depressed the, the petrol pedal. You went out into the traffic while putting a CD of him singing into the player and argued about predestination with the person in the car with you. How amazing that you could think like that. You've learned to perform highly complex behavior unconsciously. You think of the way Lee Halfpenny and Dan Bigger have learned to do things on the rugby field. How did you learn? How did they learn? Well, by practice. By disciplined practice. By watching how other players have done it. And then behaving as you were told by your driving instructor. You watched mum and dad drive and you drove off in the car until driving then became a part of you. You weren't thinking about what you were doing. You were talking to your best friend as you drove along. It's become second nature to you. And this is what Paul tells Timothy in the first letter. He says, train yourself to be godly. Discipline yourself for godliness. There's no other way. Uh, the Apostle tells the uh, Hebrews that uh, they've had great authentic preaching, but they haven't profited from it, as they should have. And the reason is that they haven't used the teaching that they heard. They haven't applied it. So when they should have been teaching other people, they themselves needed to be told again and again how they should live. And this is what he says when he comes to diagnose the weakness, it's very important, it's the last two verses of Hebrews chapter 5. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. They were not acquainted with this teaching that I've taught you again tonight. It's by constant use of what you receive from the pulpit, what you receive in sermons. And then you say, ah, I've got to do this now. This is something I've got to deal with in my life. I've got to train myself to distinguish between good and evil. The practice of godliness leads to the life of godliness. And you protest and you say, but I don't seem to be able to change. I, I don't seem to be able to do this. Well, that's an excuse because you've already done it. You've practiced. You've repeated things. You've developed some unconscious patterns. For example, with your iPad. 
with your laptop, with computer games. They become a part of you. You're not thinking, now I've got to push this and I've got to do that. You do it automatically. You've learned to juggle. And though you haven't juggled for a while, yet the children after church give you three balls and there you are, you're juggling and talking to them at the same time. It's very impressive. The capacity of developing new habits is in you tonight. You've got it. And the problem with some of you, alas, is that the habits that you've built up are working against God. They're not working for God. Uh, Let me illustrate. There was a Scottish shipbuilder, and he would sit in church, and during the sermon, he would build a ship in his mind. And then one day, George Whitfield preached in his church, and God worked in his life in that preaching and destroyed that evil habit, and he never built another ship during the sermon again. It's what you feed your life that matters. It's what you feed your computer that matters. A computer is no better than the data with which it operates. Peter talks about certain people in Second Peter 2.14. And he says about them, they are experts in greed. Second Peter 2.14. Check it up now. They have exercised themselves in it. They've become stronger and stronger in greediness. They have faithfully practiced greed so that now greediness is second nature. They automatically behave greedily. They see some food. They hear the voice saying, and there's be some special food. My, they're there. They're first in line for it. So I am saying to you, look at your lifestyle. Look in the mirror of the word of God. Today we have been warned about the evil desires of youth and about foolish and stupid arguments that result in quarrels. Has the Holy Spirit convicted you of such sins? When the Holy Spirit is present, that's what he does. When he comes, he convicts the world of these sins. And if we have the Holy Spirit present with us, we... We feel guilty about our failures. And positively, we've been talking about righteousness, faith, love, and peace. We've talked about calling on the Lord from a pure heart. We've spoken to you about being kind to everyone and able to teach people the Christian way. Has the Holy Spirit been working through the word in your heart to encourage you to long to live like that, to be changed, to be different men and women. That's the only way to become a godly person, that you orient your life now towards godliness, that you pursue godliness. And that means line by line, precept by precept, pattern by pattern, The old sinful way, as you discover it, must be replaced by a new way, a happy way, a blessed way, a joyful way that the Holy Spirit instructs you about. It means saying no every day to sin. And you practice following Jesus Christ in new ways by the guidance and the strength that the Holy Spirit provides for you. It's not simple. 
It's not what you do while you dream about other things you would prefer to be doing. But it's serious and it's solid and it's satisfying and it leads to eternity. And if you are going to be serious about God, then you will be serious and solid and satisfied with how you respond to him. You're capable of change if you're five, if you're 15, if you're 50. God never said when a person reached 75, change was impossible. Look what Abram achieved when he was a very old man. Look at the tremendous things God asked him to do in the last years of his life, and he did them. If anything, then our life and our experience of life and the changes that we've gone through in our lives should help us. We are people of hope because we've changed so much in our lives. The Holy Spirit can change any Christian. And he does. Don't fear change. The Christian life is a life of continual change. Christianity is called in the book of Acts the way. It's not called the statue. It's called the way. This constant movement. It's a walk. It's a walk with God. We, we may never say, well, I finally made it. We, we must never think, well, there's nothing more I can learn about Christianity from the Bible. Nothing more to put into practice. No more skills to develop. No more sins to put to death. No more graces to develop. Jesus Christ tells us that the Christian life is daily changing. Daily striving with sin. Daily growing in Love and joy and peace and the rest. So, you understand why now we have, in studying Second Timothy chapter 2, we've come across this word, endurance. We come across it again tonight. Go on and on and on and on. No one learns to juggle or use a yo-yo or drive a car or operate a computer until he persists. He persists and finally passes his test and now he's able to drive. He learns by enduring in spite of many failures and through times of hot embarrassment until what he desires he begins to do. He trains himself by constant practice to do what he wants to learn to do and he does it of course by the power of the Holy Spirit of course without me you can do nothing God says and so we're, we're working and we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling and all the time we're saying Lord you work in me now you help me Lord I need to change I've got things about me that I'm disgusted with I'm I'm too full of, uh, of pride and, and self and self-opinionated attitudes and manners. And Lord, I need these things to go. The Holy Spirit works through scripture. He works through men called and gifted who preach the word of God. He works through constant obedience. You fall down and you get up again. And you fail and you say, I'm sorry, Lord, here am I. And you keep going. 
and you keep going. You do. And you develop new patterns and new attitudes, new hatred to what is mean and tawdry and vile and disgusting. And oh, The man is blessed who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful. He doesn't. His delight. You see, there it is again. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in the law of the Lord, he meditates day and night. We develop these new Christ-like patterns of living until they become a part of us. And on and on. Because in heaven, they'll be a part of us. When we see the Lord, we'll be like him. That's how we're going to live for eternity. And he who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. In eternity, we will be forever pursuing righteousness, faith, peace, and love. Along with all those who call on the name of the Lord with a pure heart. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, we pray for grace then to put to death the sins that trouble us. The foolish, hurtful things that we do and say. We pray for grace to mortify those sins. And we pray, loving God, for help from Thee to pursue with all our might and main righteousness and faith and love and peace. Oh, may those fragrant graces be found in this congregation with Jesus Christ as the apple tree and It's the trees of the field, the altogether fragrantly beautiful and loving one. We ask in his name. Amen.